Hello, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, hosted by me, Jack Perks. Professionally, I'm a wildlife cameraman, but I dabble in podcasting, and each Tuesday we release an episode as I have a chat with scientists, artists, filmmakers, and passionate people all about nature in a light-hearted and certainly not serious way. Hello, how are we all doing? Well, today my guest is Peter Cairns. He is the Executive Director of Scotland The Big Picture. This is an initiative to drive the recovery of nature across Scotland through rewilding in response to the growing climate and biodiversity crisis. I definitely didn't just read that off the website. Now, they've got some incredible media that they use for this. There's some great people working on it, and it's something that I've been watching very closely over the years. The subject of today's chat is lynx and the reintroduction of lynx. They were a species that were in the UK, so potentially get them back. Before we talk about that, though, let's talk about buymeacoffee.com. So if you want to support the podcast, this is the only way that I make any coffers. So if you can donate whatever you can afford, it is greatly appreciated. We're currently on 95% of our goal to get a new microphone. So if you can chuck some money my way, that is much appreciated. And there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com. Now I mentioned that we're going to do a Q&A. So for those questions that people sent in, I'll answer them at the end of the podcast. So stick around if you did send a question in, I'll answer that at the end. Today, me and Pete talk about when we last had links in the UK, what are the potential positives of having them, what are the potential negatives of having them, and when we could potentially get these animals back in the British Isles. Here's our chat. Well, welcome to the podcast, Pete. Yeah, hi, Jack. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm lucid. How are you? Good. I'm, well, I wouldn't go as far as lucid, but I'm present. Where are we today for listeners? So we're stood in a, in a pine forest in, um, in Triach, in the Cairngorms. This is part of what is becoming a, a pretty well-known restoration or rewilding project, call it what you will, called Cairngorms Connect. So we're surrounded by birch and Scots pine and some deadwood on the floor and some deadwood standing, a nice, rich pine forest. It's so quiet. I say quiet, but there's some birds flitting around. We did see a crested tit just before recording, and if there's anyone who's really good at bird calls, they might be able to hear that as we are going. But we're not talking about crested tits today. We're talking about lynx, charismatic megafauna, divided by various people. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of it, let's just talk stats. So how big are lynx? <laughs> so a lynx is a, or the Eurasian lynx, as I, I should, yeah. I should yeah, point yeah. out, because there are different species of lynx, but the Eurasian lynx is the one we're concerned with. That's the one that used to live across the whole of the UK, about the size of a Labrador, about the weight of a border collie, so medium-sized. These are solitary hunters. They don't roam in packs like wolves do, for example. Pretty much confined to wooded habitats, forests, and they're an ambush predator. They sneak up on their prey and, and seize it right at the last minute. So they're not built for stamina or speed as such, they're built for surprise attacks. So this, where we are today, is exactly the type of habitat that a lynx would, would, uh, would live in. So they're preferring woodland, they're not likely to be out in open open areas? No, because they need that cover to, right. to ambush their prey. And as a consequence, their main prey are woodland deer, things like roe deer. A big red deer is too big for a lynx, but they would certainly take red deer hinds and calves. And of course, in Scotland, what would be a really useful service for from lynx is, is getting in amongst woodland to take out non-native seeker deer, 
which are notoriously difficult to, to hunt, as we would do, you know, human hunting. So, yeah, they would provide a, a deer management service, so to speak. OK, I didn't know they'd take something as big as a, as a seeker or a small, small red. They'll take that down pretty pretty happily will they yeah it depends i mean a big male link certainly would a smaller female may maybe would think twice about it what you've also got to bear in mind with links is that because they're solitary and because they are territorial to a degree they occupy huge home ranges to to the order of several hundred square kilometers there's a a study been done in northern scandinavia where where prey densities are very very low by default and you have male links ranging over you know, more than a thousand square kilometres. So even in a national park as big as the Cairngorms, which is Britain's largest, 4,600 square kilometres, you're never going to have lots of links. These animals are isolated and spread out across a wide landscape. Yeah, so the chances of seeing one would be... I remember seeing... um, I should really know this off the top of my head. David, the guy who did the book for you, David Heatherington. Oh, David Heatherington, Heatherington. yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was doing a talk at the Grant Arms and he was talking about even in places where they're common, the chances of seeing a link are... Uh, links are pretty pretty slim really isn't it yeah almost zero in many places yeah. I, I can remember actually a, a pretty funny story i was i was in Aust- i was in um, norway sweden norway sweden <laughs> scandinavia finland actually i was in <laughs> finland that's where i was a number of years ago photographing ospreys i was only there for four days and believe it or not i did see a lynx ah. um, and i rang a finnish friend of mine who was 52 years old at the time and said you know, what are the what are the chances? And he said, I'm 52 and I've never seen one. Um, and I was there for four days. So, yeah, they're, they're really, really elusive. And they, they operate as most cats do at, at dawn and dusk. So by that nature, it's going to be you'd be very, very lucky to, to run into one. So if we release links, I mean, the Cairngorm is an obvious one. Would that be the only option or would there be anywhere else in the UK? Or is that is that is that, is that running before we can walk sort of territory? Um, it's not necessarily running before we can walk. There, mm. there is no, there is no biophysical reason why links no, okay. couldn't exist across much of the UK. Even surprisingly, perhaps even in in human modified landscapes where there are populations of people, this is not an animal that needs wilderness. And 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 the same goes for wolves. Actually, most people perceive they need these huge wild spaces. That's not the case. The barrier to lynx is not lynx or deer or trees it's people it's people's attitudes and perceptions and beliefs and motivations and values in life those are infinitely complicated but there's no physical reason why lynx couldn't make a good living in the uk it's just down to whether we are prepared to live alongside them so what are the concerns people have then if there are kind of voices rising up what what are they worried about with lynx yeah i mean the answer to that is varied hugely varied yeah but but if we just maybe take a step back from the question i think to a degree knowledge gaps play a a big part in people's perceptions they they're not familiar with this animal and if you think about it logically we we're kind of culturally attached to wolves and bears for example we've grown up with stories of those animals we feel that we know them those stories were very rarely accurate but (laughs) but we kind of feel a connection with those animals lynx is not part of our cultural heritage or cultural history so it is an unknown animal most people don't know what they look like they don't know how big they are they don't know what they feed on they don't know whether they're a danger or not so i think perceptions on lynx are hugely varied some of it informed a lot of it misinformed but going back to your question um, i think there is a question inevitably with a large predatory mammal are they safe are they safe for me my children my pets livestock of course is a major concern especially sheep 
availability of prey. So in other words, is this a, a suitable habitat from a lynx welfare point of view to bring a lynx back to? Have we got enough habitat? Are they likely to cross roads and get run over? So are there welfare issues? And everything else in between. So yeah. there's a huge variety of opinions and perspectives and people look at lynx through many, many different lenses. And with, with any rewilding, which is the question you probably hate getting asked, or a lot of rewilders hate getting asked, is what's the point? Why why bring them back? Why bring the lynx back? Is there is there a benefit to the ecosystem or is it more of a thing that they, they were here so they should still be here? What's what's the reason for getting them back here? I would say there are there are four main reasons. The first okay. one is an ecological one, as you alluded to. So if you if you look at this forest and draw an analogy with a car engine, for example, or a plane engine, above or, us. or a plane engine that's <laughs> always going, a fucking plane going over when I do these, but uh, it bec- it's more of a cameo at this point. So uh, I wouldn't worry, Pete. You can crack on. Yeah, there are always some. Hopefully they're dumping plenty of carbon in the atmosphere, so you can crack on on your nice holiday wherever you're going. <laughs> we all get on planes, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, well, let's take a plane engine, for example. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, you, you could... Pr- I don't know anything about plane engines, but I would imagine that you could take away two, three, four, ten components of that plane engine and it would still fly. Mm. You take away 20 and it may start to splutter. You take away 30 and it, and it plummets from the sky. And our ecosystems are no different. They're a set of components that all work together to provide an efficient engine system. And what we've done, of course, is gradually dismantle or, or take away components of that system and one of the main levels of component we've taken away is apex predators we have none so that whole sort of trophic level that 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 management of an ecosystem by large predators and their impact on predators lower than them in the food chain as it were and also their prey has had a huge detrimental effect ecologically speaking on our ecosystem so there's an ecological rationale behind links coming back there's an economic consideration. They provide an efficient deer management service, which is a cost to the public purse. Um, there's also ob- obviously opportunities in terms of attracting nature-based tourism to a more nature-rich landscape. But touching on, on a point that you made, I think there is a moral obligation for us to bring back an animal that we forced into extinction. Lynx and bears and wolves are now spreading across mainland Europe. You know, there are now wolves living in France, Italy, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands of all places. Yeah. It's not that we can't live with links. It is that we won't. It's mm. as simple as that. And then I think finally, which I think is significant, if you, if you just zoom out a little bit to a, to a global perspective, you know, Scotland was one of the first countries to declare a climate emergency. Scotland's government recognises that climate breakdown is inextricably linked with global nature loss. So I would argue we're in the UN decade of ecosystem restoration. I would argue that Scotland has a duty to play its role in restoring global nature loss, in restoring biodiversity. And lynx is just one part of that. It's not the only part. But if we expect other countries, and especially those that live with large predators, India's, India with tigers, Africa with lions, Europe with wolves or bears, mm. we can't sit in judgment on those countries when we're not prepared to do the same ourselves and play our role in what has to be a global effort. So I think there are lots of different reasons, some of them at a sort of micro level, some of them at more of a macro level. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. It's interesting when you say about the wolves coming up to the Netherlands, I think in Belgium now as well. Yeah. And uh, I was talking to, I don't know if you've come across Harvey Tweets, the kind of Celtic, I, I know the, he is, yeah. the frog, man, frog kid. And um, he was saying, it's, if we still had a land bridge with Europe, 
there's a very good chance Wolves would have probably just walked across through Dartford and uh, made their way to England at the rate that they've spread across Europe on their own. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the irony, <laughs> um, you know, through a, a convoluted set of geological forces, if you like, or meteorological forces, that, that low-lying land between England and France got, got flooded, what, five, 6,000 years ago? And, and cut us off. We're now an island. I think that brings along with it a certain mindset. Not always a healthy mindset. No. <laughs> but you're right. You know, if that water didn't exist and it was solid land, we would have probably have all of those predators, or at least a presence of those predators, um, still in the UK. So, yeah, it's a strange set of quirks that give rise to the situation that we're in. When did we last have links in the UK? Do we know roughly when we had them? Or yeah, there's there's a little bit of debate over that. Okay. To be fair, but but. I suppose the headline is that carbon dating suggests that links were here as recently as, as 500 years ago, which oh, in, wow. in geological time is a, you know, is a mere blink of the eye. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of makes sense. You know, we're talking about a, a much more forested landscape historically. They're difficult to track down. They're difficult to hunt. So, yeah, links around about 500 years ago, wolves around about 250 years ago. Oh, so lynx, uh, wolves persisted longer than lynx? Yeah, because wolves are a more adaptable and, and you know, from a, at, a, at a sort of an evolutionary level, a, a more su- successful species. Mo- right. Most canids do, right. as long as they're not routinely persecuted, they, they reproduce very quickly and they're, they're pretty adaptable in terms of food source. So it makes sense that, that a dog creature would, would yeah. last longer than a cat creature. Yeah, yeah, well, dogs are generally better than cats yeah. anyway, is that my, <laughs> my humble opinion. Um, <laughs> with, with links, do we know why? I mean, presumably persecution is why they, why they were wiped out, is that, or is it more complicated? I, I, we don't know. We don't it's a know. simple okay. answer, but I, th- okay. I think, yeah, it, as with most of these species, it's reasonable to assume that habitat loss and, and, and fragmentation coupled with hunting pressure, um, you know, would nail, put the nail in the coffin. So if we were to reintroduce lynx, where, where would they come from? Would it be captive bred lynx? Would it be, I guess, not problem lynx, but lynx that are uh, somewhere with an excess of lynx? Or how would we, how would we get them? Yeah, so funnily enough, I've been in a, a meeting about that very subject this morning. Uh-huh. Um, so the Lynx to Scotland project, which, which we're involved with, and, and so is Trees for Life, and so is a charity called lifescape we're we're looking at many of these aspects right now Mm. so there's a there's a social um, side to this is talking with stakeholders about their fears and their concerns and how they can be overcome or at least mitigated but then there's a practical side of things where do you get the animals from are they as you say are they wild are they captive bred Um, do you get animals from different countries what is the protocol with regard to to things like quarantine for example where do you release them Do, do they need a hard release a soft release all of this discussion is going on right now. But in answer to your question, the the suggestion is that the lynx would be probably wild living and probably come from a combination of the Baltic countries and or Scandinavia. That's the conversation that's going on at the okay. moment. That might change, but that's that's what we're looking at. Flicking through David's book last night, as I'm obviously very prepared for these, <laughs> I was looking on the map in that book and that was a big green blob basically... It looks like there's very healthy populations of lynx there currently, so I don't think taking a few is going to make too much of a, a difference. No, and the, in, in, in many countries, um, if not most countries, they, they are expanding in, in number. And that's as a result of, of um, more habitat being mm-hmm. provided and also a softening of, of public attitudes to large predators. And, and that has allowed not only lynx, but as I said, wolves and bears and, and in some areas wolverine, to start recolonizing places where they've not been seen for generations. So there is a really 
you know, there's a, a major wildlife comeback going on in Europe. Um, at the moment, we're, we're not part of that. No, no, definitely not. How, how many links would we be able to support in the Cairngorms or Highlands? Well, David's book is the only uh, sort of reference point we have, and, and he put a lot of effort into researching or mapping the, ha- the available habitat, taking into account social and cultural attitudes. And the headline figure is round about 400 links north of the central belt. And then if you took in the forests in Dumfries and Galloway, probably another 100 okay. um, south of central belt so let, let's in round terms say 500 okay. in scotland as a whole oh fantastic that's more than i uh more than i thought because it's quite a like i say the chances of seeing them are pretty pretty slim but not impossible <laughs> no not impossible i mean whether we would as it were tolerate that number is a, yeah, is a different yeah, yeah, issue course, but, but yeah. again ecologically speaking or biologically speaking that's the sort of number that, that the country could accommodate yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. And when it comes down to cost, because people are always interested, like, well, how much is this going to cost? But presumably it's something that's going to be funded privately or with, with charities and whatnot that would kind of come up with all of that and, and sort it out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely not coming out of the public. No. I can, <laughs> no. I can guarantee that. Um, yeah, I mean, the normal route for these for these reintroductions and, and you know, draw a comparison with, with beavers yeah. is a combination of, of you know, traditional charitable funding and or private investment. And I think links being what they are, large predator, the first time it's ever been done in the UK, there's going to be a significant contribution from the private sector. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Because I, I guess there's a lot of uh, paperwork and, and, dare I say, bureaucracy in these sort of things. Huge. Yeah, I, I know mean, you probably don't want to shoot yourself in the foot here, Pete, so I'm not trying to lead you down a hole. <laughs> it, it is it is significant for any animal yes, being yeah, moved. Yeah. Um, I mean, whether that's justified or not is a different thing, but for yeah. a large predator, yeah, you yeah, can imagine. I, yeah. Um, in fact, you know, there's a, there's a wildcat reintroduction program running at the moment, and I know that the license application for that has very recently gone in and consisted of upwards of 400 pages. So there's a lot of documentation that has to support these these applications before you get a license, which effectively gives you permission to go ahead with a reintroduction. Is that the Devon one? The one that no, this is one of? being run by the Royal Zoological Society okay. of Scotland, a project okay. called Saving Wildcats. So yeah. uh, it, it has it has parallels with links. It's a different animal, obviously, yes. but yeah, same yeah. sort of approach and methodology. I can sympathise somewhat because I've been in touch with <coughs> uh, some of the guys trying to reintroduce Burbot. Um, in some of the rivers and that's just you know just a fish you wouldn't think it caused that much conflict but Jesus the uh, trouble we're having with that so I can I can only imagine that the the hassle with uh, with a you know a predator like a lynx we've touched on on bears and wolves a little bit so I'll I'll just mention those quickly like obviously lynx I can I can see and I'd love to see those back do you think there'd ever be a a Scotland where we'd potentially get wolves and bears or is that kind of a, a pipe dream I think if you'd have asked me that question not very long ago, I'd have probably said no, or, or maybe at least not in my lifetime. Mm. And I think, in all honesty, bears are a pipe dream at this stage. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult to say. I think things are moving so quickly at the moment. Think politically, we live in a very fluid situation. Socioeconomically, we live in a very fluid situation, and the 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 momentum. That, that rewilding in its in its widest sense now has behind it. I don't know. I don't mm. know. I think things can change quite quickly. If you think about other wolf reintroductions, and I'm thinking of the most famous one in in in, in Yellowstone in '95, that the campaign to bring them back started 25 years before they were actually released, and ultimately it took an alignment of the sort of political cogs, the personalities really, in the political system to come into 
to come into alignment, just provide a little bit of a, of a window of opportunity, and, and wolf advocates were straight through it. I know a number of the people involved in that, and if you'd have said to them six months prior to that alignment, was it possible, they'd have probably said no. But all of a sudden, the cog shifted, and there was a chink, and they were through it. So who knows? Um, <laughs> I think we live in a very, very fluid society, uh, and I think the younger generation are being much more vocal about their concerns over not only climate break, ba breakdown, but also ecological decline. Um, and those voices will become louder and stronger and more influential. So, yeah, who, who knows what's what's around the corner. For us right now, focuses on links. Yeah, Forget no. wolves, it's just a distraction. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's probably the, the best way to go. And we've mentioned deer a few times, and a lot of people are like, oh, what's the problem with deer hanging around? But obviously, they, they in huge numbers of deer do have a big ecological impact, don't they? Yeah, it's not deer. It, it's, yeah. it's densities of deer. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and of course, historically, the, the Victorian sporting model encourages um, the, the maximisation of, of deer numbers for all different reasons. Um, so we do have a situation in Scotland where, putting aside the absence of, of large predators, um, we have high deer densities in many, many areas. And ironically, the, the view, as it were, in inverted commas, that, that, that is celebrated... Um, you know, on the front of shortbread tins and on the front <laughs> of all those, yeah. Yeah, of all those glossy <laughs> tourist brochures. You know, it is a view, spectacular and dramatic as it is, it is a view of, of ecological impoverishment. Those areas, Glencoe being a good example, would historically have been really well wooded and would have had a much a more abundant and diverse array of wildlife than it does today. So we've conditioned ourselves, we've normalised this this degraded landscape and as i say i'm not taking away from its drama or beauty but ecologically speaking it is it is impoverished and and i'm afraid that that deer red deer in particular or the densities of red deer perpetuate that 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 situation so in in some ways the 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 presence of a large predator and and deer densities are related but politically speaking, they're two different, different yes. discussions. Yes, yeah, 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 I see, what, um, I see so, what you mean. I mean, whether lynx or wolves ever come back to Scotland aside, something has to be done about deer densities right. in some areas. It's not the case everywhere. No. Um, but, but if you look around here, for example, Glenfeshie is a very, a very often sort of quoted example of what can happen when, when deer densities are reduced. And they were reduced significantly about 15 years ago. And if you walk up there today, the, the, the amount of woodland regeneration is incredible. It's unrecognisable compared to what it was um, 15, 20 years ago. Because so, they're eating saplings and things like that, young trees or <coughs> yeah, damaging I mean, bark? Or... You used to go up there and it was, it was almost like going into the Serengeti. You know, there, there was a bowling green, effectively, on which 100, 150 red deer would just lounge around munching away. They had an easy life. Um, and, on, and on one level, that was a really spectacular thing to see. Um, but you go up there now and you just see the difference and, and whether you like the difference or not, you can't deny the cause and effect. You no. can't deny that the, the reduction in grazing pressure has resulted in this massive pulse of, of native woodland. Uh, yeah. And that's happening not only in Glenfeshie, but up in Abernethy and Rothiemurcus and, and in Shriac and other areas as well. So there is, again, going back to lynx, there is more habitat for lynx being, as it were, produced um, and that's not only good for lynx, it's good for a whole range of different species, but that's mainly being done where deer pressure, deer grazing pressure is being, is being reduced. 
because even if the i mean the lynx will obviously eat deer but there's um i forget the term it's like a the fear of predators keeps them on the move and like like you said they're lounging around on a bowling green if there's predators they're not going to be doing that so that's one advantage but then obviously they'll be picking off the odd deer and i'm sure in david's talk he mentioned lynx prefer the the haunch or they like the the back of the leg that's their favorite bit and if there's enough food they'll just go and get another deer which you might think is wasteful but of course that carcass is then going to provide food for ravens and insects and fertilize the ground so it's not a waste at the end of the day it's going to support for a plethora of other wildlife yeah exactly and, go, and going back to the to the car or the airplane engine car, large carcass ecology and everything that goes with it most of which you've just described is a missing or at least a suppressed ecological interaction in in scotland we, we, we tend to drag deer carcasses off the hill. Livestock we're not allowed by law to, to leave on the ground. So I know it sounds a little bit um, morbid, but we haven't got enough dead bodies lying around, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so the impact of, of, of a large predator killing a deer is not just on the deer itself. Obviously, that, that creature is dead and, and is no longer able to, to browse or graze. But the whole ecological... Um, process that, that kicks into action as a result of that dead body lying in the forest is immense and as you say scavengers take advantage of it insects take advantage of it and eventually it, it delivers its nutrients back into the forest which creates new tree growth which is good for a whole range of species so again that's one of those processes those conveyor belts that is interrupted or suppressed or in some cases completely absent across the UK. Yeah I'm, I'm all for it let's do it. And I guess the, the million dollar question, uh, how soon could they? Or is, that, is there no way of knowing that at the minute? Is it too early to, to find out? Or In an ideal world, let's say that everything, everyone goes, yes, we're well up for it. What kind of time scale are we looking at? Well, first of all, that's not going to help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Every, I'm sure it will. I'm sure everyone will be keen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, suppose, I suppose depressingly, in some ways, it is a political decision. Yes, it's yeah, not yeah, an yeah. ecological decision. No, and 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 arguably it's not even a, a societal decision. Um, so yeah, again, it comes down back down to how the political stars align. Mm. At the moment in Scotland, we have a we have a, an alliance between the, the SNP and the Greens, which has opened the door for species like beavers, for example. Um, so you would argue that there is a, a favourable wind blowing, so to speak, at the moment. How long that's going to blow for, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, but fickle as it may sound, this decision could come down to who's holding the decision-making power at any given time. Um, I have to say, and yeah, I might live to regret saying this, I, I don't think it's any longer an if. I do think it's a when. Okay. Um, and I think that has changed in the last three, four, five years. And I think it's public knowledge, or it's, it's those gap, knowledge gaps being gradually filled, people becoming more informed. And again, that bigger backdrop of climate breakdown and global nature loss. They, these are all narratives that are feeding in to the need to restore uh, our ecosystem so that they're healthy, functional and, and complete. Cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I'd go a little bit further than that, oh, okay. actually, without being overly, overly <laughs> maverick about it. I, I think, as I say, I think it's, I, I feel it is a when rather than an if. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't like to say when. I, I would like to think it's in my lifetime. I, yeah. Hopefully, if I don't get run over by a bus, I've got a few years left. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, all, all that I and, and others like me can do is, is keep pushing at that door, 
keep telling the story of the benefits that lynx can bring yeah. and acknowledging the disbenefits that they come with. These animals come with baggage. There's no question about that. As a society, can we adapt our mindset so that we can accommodate those those disbenefits in order to take advantage of, of what I would consider to be the many benefits? I suppose as well, if you look at some of the recent ones, like 20 years ago, would people have thought beavers would be back in Britain and, and eagles on the south coast of England? And, and it's happened. So yeah. I exactly. suppose, you know, anything's possible. I, I think on a daily basis, you know, it's tortuously slow and bureaucratic, as, as you say. Mm. Um, but if you look back 20, 30 years, beavers are a good example. White-tailed eagles are a good example. Um, you know, they're talking about wildcats now in, in England, pine martin translocation, red squirrel translocation, all of these. Ironically, I think, um, you know, 25 years ago, we didn't know how to do this stuff physically, practically. That's the easy bit now. We we know how to we know how to restore forests. We know how to restore peatlands. We know how to translocate animals. It's the people stuff that remains the yeah. barrier. Yeah, um, And whether that's you know whether that's beavers, white-tailed eagles, even red squirrels, believe it or not, um, and, and as you say, bird, but they, they yeah. you know, people people have a range of opinions for a different range of reasons, and, it, and it's those mindsets, those hearts and minds, that's the battleground really, if if, if there is one. I guess that's why the stuff you do with Scotland, the big picture is quite important, where you can produce, whether it's a book, whether it's a film, whether it's, you know, whatever, just to help put the facts across. And um, I guess if people do have concerns, try and put them at ease a little bit and just show them this is what's going to happen and here's a bit more information about it. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we try to inform opinion. Mm. Um, you know, those opinions might not be the same as mine, but at least please base them on fact rather than fiction yeah um so it's not my job necessarily to persuade people to to want links back but if you're going to have a view try and make it an informed view and that's the knowledge gaps that, that we try to plug yeah here, here i think so well my hand is going blue i think i'm going to fall off in a second so we'll we'll wrap it up but look, it's been a pleasure talking to you pete in uh, a very lovely setting which has been quiet throughout most of this so we could have probably just done this on zoom but hey ho i'm in the highlands anyway so thanks for coming on buddy not a, not a problem let's have a cup of tea <laughs> where pete lives is like a fairy tale he lives in this incredible area with mountains behind his house a beautiful river, woodland, and if you just close your eyes, you can imagine 500,000 years ago, you can just imagine lynx brushing past your leg. Maybe not past your leg, but it's not that much of a stretch to imagine this predator stalking those forests. So it's amazing. I'm all for it. I think out of all the large predators, lynx are probably the most practical and likely to get reintroduced in the near future. We touched on deer management and I am actually going out with a deer stalker for the podcast in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to go out and potentially shoot a deer while we're recording, which I know some people might be a little bit squeamish on. But deer overpopulation is a huge issue and I think it's something worth talking about. So we are going to go out and see a little bit about that problem, not only because of an ecological issue, but you know people literally die from there being too many deer, road accidents and whatnot. So it should be an interesting podcast, which will be out in a couple of weeks. Before we go, I did mention we do the Q&A. So I'm going to read out half a dozen questions that people sent in. Okay, so let's start with YouTube. So Peter Wise sent in this question, which is, what fish are the hardest to film underwater and which were the easiest? And did the behavioural reactions to the camera of any surprise you? I'll start with easiest. Um, most cyprinids are pretty easy. You know, roach, rud, stuff like that. Percher, <laughs> that's my dog barking. Uh, Percher really um, easy because they'll come and investigate the camera. So m most fish will kind of 
come up there. In terms of the hardest, you'd assume it'd be the rare ones, but actually, uh, species like salmon are really difficult. Like, you know, you can chuck a camera in a river and off you go, but to get good footage, decent behaviour, Atlantic salmon are pretty difficult to find the right river, the right conditions, the right times. So I would go out on a limb and say, even though salmon get shown on TV a lot, they're probably one of the hardest fish to film properly. They're a tricky, tricky fish. Um, another question from YouTube from Kubi Ark Survival put, hey, what about the aquarium and when will the next video of the aquarium be? So much greetings. Um, so if you follow my YouTube channel, I occasionally post videos of like what I'm doing in my garden and particularly the aquariums that I've got. So I'm not planning another aquarium video anytime soon, purely because I've only just set up a coarse fish aquarium. So um, as I'm recording this, I'm just staring at it now. We've got minnows, roach, chub, carp, bream, stone loach, um, barbel, all kinds of lovely coarse fish in there. I don't get any work done because I end up staring at it all the time. But I am thinking about setting up a pike aquarium, potentially, um, in the spring. If I can get hold of a little pike, I might do that. And I may very well make a video on that as well. So um, no definitive answer. At some point in the future, I'll probably do another another little video. Let's head over to Instagram. Funnily enough, this next question I've pretty much answered with the previous one, which is uh, from Weir Landscapes. Hi, Jack. Love your native fish photography. Do you keep native fish in your aquarium? Uh, yeah. Next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. So I've got, I've, yeah, pretty much just listed. I also have a native fish pond in my garden. So I've got um, various native species of, of fish in there as well. Uh, next question is from Tom Humps Angling. <laughs> Uh, this is where the questions start to go downhill slightly. Uh, if you had to have sex with any fish, what would it be and why? I can honestly say that's not something I've ever thought about. Um, the mechanics of, of fish is that they don't actually have uh, the equipment for that. Like fish don't have a vagina. So uh, getting stuck into a fish would be, be tricky. You'd have to get inventive, you know, and I'll let you use your own imagination um, for that. But... Um, I mean, what am I at gunpoint? I suppose it's not a question I think about too much. Um, I don't know. The right fish on the right day, who knows? Maybe a carp. Carp would be a good-looking fish. Get cracking into that. Um, this is not the question I thought I'd be answering for this. Uh, last question is from Anonymous. Uh, not the organisation online, but just they didn't want to leave their name. And they've put, Jack, how do you make your money? Which is it's a bit personal, isn't it? Um, so I'll answer this basically because I, I always get asked... You know, is this your full-time job? And I'm a bit like, well, I've been doing this 10 years now, so um, I'd like to think people would know that. But I suppose with social media, people only show what they want you to see. So there are a lot of people who wildlife photography and filmmaking isn't their full-time job, but you maybe think that it is. But yeah, I can confirm uh, I make all my money from taking pictures of, of wildlife and filming wildlife, predominantly fish. Um and if I were to break that up, it's kind of a mixture of, um, I guess you more accurate would be wildlife media than photographer now, because although I do do some stills, I do a lot of filming, editing, writing, podcasting, things like that. So lots of different things in the wildlife media world is, is how I make my money. But, um, but yeah, it is a full-time job. Anyway, that's the Q&As. Um, if I get some more, I might do another Q&A episode later down the line. 
Now, next week's episode is another one of Jack Does Stuff, and I will be doing the Big Garden Bird Watch. So that will be an episode of me just looking out my window, seeing what birds come in the garden. I'm sure many of you did the Big Garden Bird Watch as well, so we're going to be covering that. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next Tuesday. Cheers.